Hello, Teresa. Hi, Matt. It's your executive producer of the podcast, Matt Anonymous. How are you? Hello, how are you? I'm good. <laughs> how you feeling? <laughs> I'm feeling good. A bit sleep deprived, as you might imagine. <laughs> but we're good. That's awesome. That's awesome. Well, I wanted to give you a call because we're going to uh, intro our uh, next podcast episode with Dr. Carp. Why don't you tell me a little bit about it? So Dr. Carp, for anybody who's not aware, is really something of a sleep guru. He wrote a book called Happiest Baby on the Block. It's sold well over a million copies. It's available in a bajillion different languages. And he is the guy behind the theory of the five S's. And so if you've had a child recently, or if you are the spouse or the partner of a ch- of a person who had a child, then you've likely heard of or at least read this book. It's something that we have put into practice with our little guy, Matthew. Um, and he's somebody that I've just followed him for advice, um, for different techniques to get our little guy to sleep. And so I thought if I'm struggling with sleep with our six-week-old, perhaps other moms and dads out there are as well. So I reached out to the social network and I asked parents, provide me with some questions that you have for Dr. Karp. Um, he not only can talk about infant sleep, toddler sleep, but also um, the new thing called toddler ease, which is how to get your raging toddler to calm down. Yeah, that's what um, that's what I need so, to know. <laughs> that's why you are listening. Yeah, is that as why, a, is as that a father of a, of a of a raging three year old boy, I, I definitely needed to know that. So it was really great to hear. So that. for you. You listen in for the toddler ease. I'm tuned in for the infant sleep, and uh, we even have some good information for those who are in between, like the six-month to one-year stage. So there's something in here for everybody, and I hope everybody gets something out of it. It was a great chat. (laughs) From New York City, USA, welcome to the Fox 5 Podcast Network. All right, I don't think that there is a parent on the planet today, at least a parent of a newborn that has not heard of happiest baby on the block and has not reached for that book in the middle of the night to refresh themselves on the five S's. I know I have this morning. I'm so honored to be joined by Dr. Harvey Karp, the creator inventor, the guru of happiest baby on the block and the five S's. Hi, Dr. Karp. Hey, Teresa. Good morning. How are you? Oh, I'm so good. Well, sleep deprived as a mother of a newborn, huh? but, but good. <laughs> yeah. So you know, it's an interesting thing. Is you have those yeah, night but... time, you know, waking up two, two in the morning, four in the morning, which sounds like, you know, it, and it is hard. There's no question about it, but the world disappears those times, you know, it's just you and your baby. And there's something that's so unbelievably beautiful and, and really doesn't last a long time. So the treasure the moment. I've actually been saying that to myself uh, a lot recently. One of the biggest pieces of advice that I got from friends was cherish the moment because it flies by. And before you know it, your baby's going to be six months old and you're going to be wishing that they were as small as they were during those early days and early weeks. And I keep looking at them thinking, you're out of your mind. How, why would you wish to be sleep deprived and hear fussy crying baby and all that? But, Lately, I've been trying to stop and really treasure those moments, and it actually has made everything more enjoyable if you put it into perspective and you realize it's just a fate. It's right. You know, six months goes by in your life in a snap of the fingers, and yet it's your entire baby's babyhood. Um, I mean, 
all sorts of things are coming after that, but this is a very precious time. So I'm glad that you got that advice. Yeah. And the, the, one of the biggest pieces of advice, as I said at the beginning, was read the book, Happiest Baby on the Block. My sister was the first one to give it to me. Then my best friend gave it to me. And so I, people kept handing me this book. So I read it on vacation. And I'll be honest with you, Dr. Krupp, I didn't think it was going to be as important in these early weeks as it has ended up being. I mean, we, my husband and I, multiple times a day, put the five S's into practice from the swaddling and the shushing and yeah. the, everything. I, can you first, for, for those parents who um, may have not read the book or don't do them in the order that you suggest in the book, they haven't, maybe they only use three S's and not five. First of all, tell people the importance of uh, the sequence of the five S's. Yeah, thanks so much for that. Um, um, you know, um, people used to joke that they don't come with, with um, an owner's manual or, or, you know, user instructions. And I kind of hope that the five S's are at least part of, a, of, a, of an owner's manual. And, um, and thank you so much for talking about the book. Actually, I really recommend the streaming video to families because this, these are really techniques. And kind of like learning how to tie your shoelaces, I mean, the book is a good book. I'm not dissing my own book, but it really <laughs> helps to see them. And especially for guys, men really, men are terrible at breastfeeding, really bad. But we're <laughs> very good at baby calming. And, um, and so the five S's are a way that you imitate the baby's life in the womb. And, and the real key to the, key to the concept here is that our babies are born three months before they're ready for the world. And when you imitate the womb experience doing five steps that are very specific techniques, you can oftentimes flip a switch almost, like turn on a calming reflex that helps you calm fussy, oftentimes even colicky babies in minutes or seconds and helps you promote a baby's sleep. So that's really what the, what the goal is. And those five steps are swaddling is the first one, and that's cornerstone, that's key. Nothing else works well if the baby's not swaddled with the arms down. And that's a whole other discussion we can get into. Um, the second mm -hmm. S is yeah. the side or stomach position. Never for sleeping. The back is the only safe position for sleep. But the side stomach or stomach is the best for calming crying. And the third is shushing or white noise. The fourth is swinging or jiggly rhythmic motion. And the fifth is sucking. And every baby's a little different. They all need the swaddling, but then they need kind of different combos of those other S's. Once you find out what your baby likes, though, your, your money, I mean, that's what's going to take you all the way through. Yeah, I, I find that my kid needs all of them and then some. <laughs> he, mm -hmm. We go through it one by one. But really, the swaddling, I've noticed, especially recently, again, I'm, I'm at six weeks now, uh, is he'll be screaming his you know, eyes out. And then all of a sudden, I put the swaddle on. And I can, I can start to see the energy level decrease. I can start to see the, sort of the temperature go down. And he starts to slowly yeah. calm. And then when I pick him up and start to sway, um, you know, everything else sort of falls into place. But it really is just putting his arms down, keeping them close together. What is it? It, it calms their moral reflex? Is that it? Yeah, it keeps them from startling. And this is actually one of the things that confuses parents the most because unlike, what's your baby's name, by the way? Matthew. Unlike Matthew, many babies actually get more upset when you swaddle them with their arms down. 
And parents think, well, my baby doesn't like swaddling. But babies don't get a vote. They, they don't have the responsibility to not whack themselves in the face and startle. And in the womb, they had very little room for, for flailing their arms. So swaddling is the first step. Whether they like it or not, that's the first step. Because it makes the other things work better, even though it might not in and of itself calm a baby down. We actually just um, released a new type of swaddle called Sleepy. And I don't know if, if, if you've ever seen that, but it's a zip-up swaddle with inside bands that keep the arms down because that's the hardest thing for parents those little arms keep popping up you know and and wanting to escape and um and so the key is to really be able to snug those arms and then to keep the hips loose actually we want the arms tight but we want the hips loose so it's kind of a very intricate combination that's why it's hard to do it sometimes with just wrapping a swaddle blanket and it helps to have one of these uh, pre-made blankets like sleepy when so when you're talking about the swaddle, especially what I hear from a lot of new moms and dads certainly is that they're concerned about transitioning out of the swaddle um, because they feel as if there's going to come a point in time maybe where they won't be able to use it. And they're concerned that it works so well during the fourth trimester. What's going to happen after that? Yep. Yep. Well, you know, that's a real, it's a real issue. And parents are kind of very confused by doctor recommendations because we know that swaddling reduces crying and increases sleep. And especially for a child your age, six to eight weeks is the peak of fussing. Um, they're whacking themselves in the face, et cetera. But you don't want your baby rolling over swaddled. You don't want them on the stomachs. Well, you don't want them on the stomach anyway, but you definitely don't want them on the stomach swaddled. So doctors now recommend stopping swaddling at two or three months which makes you even more crazy because two or three months, which is still peak of infant sleep death um, problems, when you unswaddle them, they wake up more, they roll over more. You're more tempted to fall asleep with them in bed, which is really not a good thing. Um, And so it gets really tough to know what to do. And in fact, that's why we, um, uh, about two years ago, I released a new type of a baby bed called Snoo which secures babies in place. So once they're swaddled, they're secured on the back so they can't roll over. So it gives you peace of mind that you're getting all the benefits of swaddling. And then that allows you to wean the swaddling when your baby is ready, which is usually around five months or even six months of age. And how do you know when your baby is ready? What are some telltale signs um, that parents can look for that suggest my kid doesn't need this anymore? Well, you're seeing them get better with their hands. They're not as jolty and jittery with using their arm motions when they're not swaddled. And then around five months or so, um, the way I do it is you release one arm. So with our blankets, they're little arm holes, or if you're using a, a regular blanket, you can wrap your baby with one arm down, one arm out, and see how they do. If they start waking themselves up, then they're not quite ready yet. Here's an interesting thing, though. No one says, oh, my God, I'm only feeding my baby milk for the first four months. Does that mean he'll never eat food? You know, when they're ready, they they mature (laughs) into the next stage. And so um, you don't what you what what you don't want to do and what parents do get tripped up on is if you're always rocking your baby to sleep in your arms or nursing your baby to sleep in your arms and then you put them down to sleep when they wake up and they will wake up in the middle of the night, we all do, then they're going, wait, wait, what happened? There was a breast in my mouth a second ago. Um, And they're going to get upset, and they're going to demand your attention. 
Um, like if you wake up in the middle of the night, your pillow's on the floor, and the last thing you remember, it was under your head, you're going to reach over and look for your pillow. So one of the things parents do want to pay attention to, if you can, is put your baby down drowsy but awake. And even if they fall asleep in your arms, when you put them down, you wake them up a tiny bit, which sounds like the dumbest advice ever. But you want them to have their eyes open a little bit so they start learning that they can soothe themselves without always being in your arms or at the breast. So I fall victim to that. My little guy falls asleep in my arms quite often. And I don't know if that makes me a bad mom or if I'm doing this wrong, but it happens a lot. And And I find that he sleeps better or longer if he starts in my arms or even right after breastfeeding or, or something. But one of my big questions for you is the, the codependency aspect of it or the, um, the baby relying on that to sleep. Cause I don't want to fall into a trap like a lot of moms um, fear this as well of the baby now needing to be in your arms in order to sleep. Sure. Yeah, and that's a common concern, but please don't worry about that. This is the most wonderful, beautiful time. You want your baby to fall asleep in your arms. It's delicious. It's, it's why we have babies. It's, it's such a, a wonderful experience for the baby and the mother, and that's the idea of the fourth trimester, that they have that holding and rocking. The issue is, what do you do when you put them down if that's the only way they know to fall asleep? And are you using snoo? I, I, I'm not, don't know. I'm, if you I know I'm not, I'm not, I'm not using the snoo. No, I know a lot about it. I have a lot of friends who have um, used it and uh-huh. people rave about it. But I, I, at first I thought I can do this. I'll just, I'll just get a run of the mill bassinet. Now I'm like, Oh, wait a second. Maybe there is something to this technology that everybody is talking about because I've heard really good things about it, not having used it myself. Well, here's the weird thing. I mean, there are a couple of weird things. One is that um, if you ha- you had a night nurse for a while, so having a night nurse or a nanny, you know, you have to be pretty well off to afford that. And if you had two or three nannies, you're like a billionaire. But up until 100 years ago, everyone had five nannies. You had your grandma, your aunt, your older sister. You had help. No one is supposed to raise a baby or two or three kids on their own. It just was never done in the history of humanity. So it's not like you should suck it up and be a super mom and you're supposed to do everything and you should be there 24 hours a day because you're going to burn up. If you're sleep deprived, which more than half of new mothers are, um, you're, you're, you're not as available. You're more likely to have accidents. You're more likely to fall asleep with the baby in an unsafe position. So it's not about who's the toughest mom. It's about how do you use tools? Just like you use tools in every part of your life to make your life easier, to make up for the fact that you don't have the help you really should have. So that's, that's the first concept. And the second concept is that in the womb, your baby is rocked, shushed, and held every single second, 24-7. So to put the baby in a still flat bed, not moving, is weird, especially on the back, because your baby's never been on the back. And while that's the safest position, it's the worst position for, for helping baby sleep. And so to keep your baby safe, you need to add some extra oomph, a little extra sound, a little extra motion all night long. And that's why people are loving snoo and babies are loving snoo, because if you give them what they were used to, they sleep much better. Literally an extra hour, hour and a half in the first, you know, in the first week. It's not, you don't put them in wow. sleep eight hours. It's not a magic bed. 
But to get an extra hour or two, and usually by three months or so, they're sleeping seven or eight hours straight, which was never possible before. And that's all because you're giving the cues that they were used to to begin with. Why should I say to you, hey, Teresa, you know what? When you go to a hotel, are you so addicted to beds and pillows? Like you only go to a hotel with beds and pillows or are you okay to sleep on the floor if you have to? And you're going to go, well, I, I, I just like beds and pillows, you know? It doesn't mean you're cushy or you're weak. It's just what you've gotten used to. And some people like the covers tucked in or they like a hard pillow or a soft pillow. And for babies, it's sound, it's rocking, it's, it's shushy sound, and it's snug holding. That's, that's the key to promoting sleep. So why would we take that away from a baby as soon as they're born? So with that in mind, when you're talking about the, the, the sleep of a baby, especially in the 24-hour period, um, mine is, seems to be a champion cat napper. So we're looking at 20 mm-hmm. minutes here and there, maybe one longer nap of an hour or two during the day at inconsistent times. But then as we start to get into those evening hours, man, the witching hour for us is not an hour. It's a couple of hours. But then when he goes uh-huh. down for bed, I find, I find that the, um, the first stretch of sleep is often our longest. But what I want to do is try to prolong that as best I can, right, mm-hmm. to just slowly get us through the night um, as quickly and as seamlessly as possible. So when we're talking about a baby's mm-hmm. sleep schedule, what do you recommend, for, especially for new moms and dads? Well, in general, you know, babies need a lot of feeding. So feeding every hour, hour and a half, two hours at the most during the day is what you want to aim for. You don't want your baby napping two, three hours or longer. That's, that's going to totally unbalance the nighttime schedule. So that's the first thing. The second thing is um, to um, try a dream feed. So wake your baby up at 11 o'clock or so to do a feeding, even before they wake themselves up. When, they, when your baby wakes up and you feed your baby, you're rewarding the baby for waking up, which is, of course, it's wonderful to feed your baby when they wake up. Don't, don't worry about that. But if you can anticipate the waking a little bit and feed them before they wake up, you end up filling their tummies without um, kind of training them um, uh, to wake up more. And then the, the third thing is making sure that you're feeding efficiently. So um, for bottle feeding, that's easy. You know, you just give them a bottle and they drink as, as much as they're going to drink. With breastfeeding, what I find people get really confused about is they put the baby on one side for 15, 20 minutes before they switch to the other side, or they just keep the baby on one side. And it's much more efficient to feed the baby five or six minutes on the first side, do a burping, then put the baby on the other side, and then, um, and then um, uh, let the baby go as long as they want on that side. They're going to get the hind milk then on that side but they'll end up getting an extra ounce or two of milk. And that really makes a big difference in terms of their, um, their overall sleep ability at night. Oh, so actually, so do a, a shorter feed on the first breast and then, and then let the baby go as long as it wants on the second breast instead of, exactly. instead of essentially letting them tap themselves out on one and run yeah. the risk of falling asleep on the breast. Oh, that's a really great tip. Right, because that's what happens. Yeah, because the breast collects milk. And so you'll, the, you'll have like a couple of ounces of milk stored in the breast when the baby starts sucking they gulp that down then the milk is just coming a drip 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 at a time whereas the other breast is ready to go saying me 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 take me you know so switch over to the other side then they get that quick two ounces and then they can finish up with the slow 
fattier milk on the on the second side. It it just ends up giving you an extra couple of ounces during the day. And babies are smarter than we are. They only eat a certain amount. And you can stuff food in their face. They're not going to eat it if they're not hungry. They just get a certain number of ounces in during the day. And so if they get more ounces in during daylight hours, then they naturally need fewer ounces nighttime. So those are all things that help. And then the other big thing that helps is um, to use something like a snoo. And I know I sound like I'm the terrible self-promoter. But, you know, we're doing studies now showing that we can... We can help women with postpartum depression. We have studies at UCLA, University of uh, California, San Diego, University of Michigan just starting, showing that if you give women extra sleep and confidence that the baby is taken care of, they naturally are, are able to get better rest themselves, which helps their attitude. It helps you lose weight. It helps you have fewer marital stresses. It helps you not bring your baby to an unsafe situation. So um, the interesting thing about SNU is that people go, yeah, but this is like a $1,000 baby bed. Who can afford that for six months' use? And actually, it's not a baby bed. I mean, it is a bed. It's a white noise machine. It's the safest swing. It's an extra hour or two of sleep. It's extra safety. But mostly what it is is it's your older sister. Your older sister moved in, Teresa, and said, you know what, honey? I'm going to stay here. I'm going to be up all night long. You sleep. I'm going to hold rock and shush the baby. And if the baby's hungry, I'll bring the baby to you. And that's really what it is. It's an extra pair of hands. And, and that, that ends up costing about 5 $6 a day. And if you use it with your second child, that ends up being like $3 a day, which you're spending on Red Bull or coffee just to stay awake with your baby. So the curious thing about this is it's, it's a service more than it's a product. It's really the helper that parents really need. That's, that's why I, I, you know, I'm trying to help parents understand what the value is. You can even resell the bed for five, 600 bucks and get, you know, most of your money back on the back end. So it really turns out to be one of the most affordable things you can get for your baby and highest value. Before I get into some questions that people had been asking me, because I solicited uh, questions online and I got a lot, not only about newborns, but especially about toddlers. The one question I have uh, just as we move off of infants for a second is in your book, you talk about colic and how there are mm -hmm. total, there are societies all around the world that where colic does not exist. So for yep. parents that may not have a colicky baby, but perhaps have a fussy baby, any quick tips that you can tell them that would put their mind at ease? I mean, one of the, I think one of the worst things uh, about the, the first couple of weeks is if you've tried everything and the baby is still fussing and you realize that sometimes you don't, maybe you don't have the answers or you don't have the tools. And that I think is one of the most frustrating things, especially for the parent that is home all day with the baby. So any quick tips yeah. for fussiness or colic? Yeah. So the whole colic thing is very confusing to doctors and parents and grandmothers. Um, and it, um, people think it's gas, the stomach pain, which, it rarely is, maybe 5 or 10% of the time it is, but usually it's not. I mean, babies double up and squirm and they pass gas, but it's not usually uh, pain related to, to the, the gas. So a couple of things that are important. Number one, if your baby is fussy all day, all night, that baby needs to be checked because the, fussy, the colicky babies more have the witching hour like you're talking about with Matthew. Um, and not, you know, they have two, three hour, four hour periods, which are pretty peaceful and happy during the day. So that's one thing. The second thing is 
doing the five S's, doctors do the five S's to help determine if a baby has a, a problem that needs medical attention as opposed to just a simple behavioral problem that needs extra support and extra calming. But the key to doing the five S's is doing them correctly. If you hit someone's knee to get a knee reflex and you're off by an inch, it looks like you're doing it right, but you'll never get a reflex. Even if you hit the right place, if you do it too softly, you're not going to get a reflex. And that's why we're saying about the DVD or the streaming video of Happiest Baby, because you need to learn how to shush, how to swaddle, how to do the jiggle motion, how to let the head jiggle back and forth like a bobblehead doll. If you're not doing the technique correctly, you may as well not even try because it's not going to work. So that 95% of the time when the five S's don't work, it's because it's not being done right. And if you're doing it right and they don't work, then that baby needs a medical evaluation. Okay. Let's get into some of the questions that some people have because I know that you're going to have the answers for them. A lot of people were asking about sleep training specifically. How do you know when to go in to check on the child? How do you know when to let them self-soothe and figure it out? And, and are there effective or efficient ways to teach a child to self-soothe, especially when we're talking about babies as old as 15 months, a year, 15 months or so? Well, that's a very, very broad question. And 15-month-old, totally different than a three-month-old. So a couple of things. Number one, you start out with better sleep habits, and that's really kind of getting to what I was saying about using swaddling, using white noise, using something like a snoo, putting them down, drowsy but awake. All of those things get you in the right direction. Uh, what we find with, with snoo is that when we educate or help babies learn how to have better sleep patterns, we very rarely have to do sleep training like letting them cry it out type of a thing. There are other ways of sleep training besides cry it out. Um, you can be responding to your baby. Pick up and put down is another um, way of sleep training babies. And I have a book on sleep called The Happiest Baby Guide to Great Sleep that lists three different ways of sleep training babies. But if you're going to do the cry it out routine, the, the biggest mistake parents make is that they let the baby cry, then they go in. Either they never go in, which is a mistake because your baby feels abandoned and you don't know if they're vomiting or you know getting stuck in an, an unsafe position. So it's really daunting. But then they go in and then they get too close to the crib or they pick the baby up or they touch the baby, which is giving a mixed message to the child. So you kind of have to harden your heart when you do this and, and just pop your head in and say, I love you, sweetheart, go to sleep and and close the door. And usually it's, it's three or four tough nights. Go ahead. So three or four tough nights. Okay. So a lot of people they'll feel like sometimes the cry it out method is a bit too harsh or perhaps they live in an apartment like I do and they have fear sure. that they'll be evicted. <laughs> if their no. neighbors hear three nights of, uh, of screaming and crying. Yeah. Yeah. No, that can happen. I mean, that's just real life. Um, you might end up, if you had to do that and you had a, a neighbor who was upset, you might have to give them a white noise machine or have a loud white noise that kind of covers over the baby's cry. My job as a pediatrician is try to prevent you from having to do a sleep training. So I did a survey of a thousand moms with Baby Center. And what we found is that moms on average were getting 5.6 hours of sleep, which was broken in little pieces. And what you have to understand about that is if you get six hours of sleep on a regular basis, you're the equivalent of drunk. Moms and dads oh, wow. are drunk. 
That's why it's unsafe bed sharing with them because you'd never bed share if you were really drunk. So, so what happens is that by, by six months of age, half of all babies are still waking up once or more than once a night. And that's tough. And, and it actually is the biggest misconception new parents have. Parents think that, okay, my baby's going to wake up a lot in the first, you know, weeks or months, and then they're going to sleep better, and then it's going to get better, and it's going to continually get better. And that's not what usually happens. What usually happens is sleep is a roller coaster. They, um, they, uh... Hello? Sorry, they Hello? Babies oh, sleep no, a little bit baby, better little in the baby beginning. Just woke, my little baby just woke up, so that's why you're hearing a little baby cry in the background. Oh, yeah. <laughs> yes. Hey, Hello. Matthew. We're learning, we're learning how to make you sleep better. Okay, listen up. All right, sorry, I apologize. Continue, Dr. Carp. <laughs> yeah. you, know, you know what? What we used to give babies to make them sleep better, we gave them, like back in the 1970s even, we gave them a medicine called Paragoric, which was a mixture of opium and Jack Daniels. You could buy opium at your local drugstore. Isn't that amazing? Just 40 oh, yeah. years ago. It's kind of mind-blowing. Um, yeah. And you'd be put in jail today for doing that. But anyway, babies don't just sleep better and better and better over time. Some of them do. But most of them go through cycles where they start waking up because they go through a growth spurt or a sleep regression or a cold. And suddenly their sleep goes from six hours straight to waking up every two hours again. And, um, and that's where the real struggles come for parents and why they end up sometimes doing sleep training. What we're often able to see, <laughs> hey, Matthew. <laughs> you can hear him. Yeah. With new, we're often able to see by getting babies into better sleep cycles, we're able to get them through growth spurts and through sleep regressions without too much disruption. And, and if we, you can get a baby sleeping well by six months, then not only will they have a much better tendency of being good sleepers, but it reduces their risk of being overweight. It reduces their risk later on. A good sleeper by one year of age has less of a risk of learning issues or attention deficits. Um, and, um, and so it's really, it's really a good goal to try to get your baby into good sleep patterns. What about p- kids who, um, or parents who find that the child is demanding that a parent be with them when they go to sleep? So a friend reached out and said that both of her boys need a parent to be in the room when they fall asleep. And her babies are, or babies, they're, they're toddlers, they're three and older, I believe. Um, once they're asleep, they wake up, and then they come into the parent's bedroom to get one of them to bring them back into the child's room, which sounds sure. hellish, frankly. Um, so what does a parent like that do? Is there anything that can be done for them, or do they have to, I mean, they can't go back to basics, or can they? Well, um, everybody, everybody makes different choices about that. Um, you definitely don't want a baby bed sharing in the first nine months or so because of the risks involved with that. But people all around the world bed share. So it's not a bad thing if it's okay with, you know, you and your partner. So that's not in and of itself the worst thing in the world. However, um, being there to help your child fall asleep is, is normal. You can use white noise and music. Those things help. And white noise all night long helps even adults sleep with white noise at night. Um, but you should want to be there when your baby's fall, when your toddler's falling asleep and reading them stories and helping remember how good the day was and what's going to happen the next day. It's it's part of the work, but also part of the pleasure of being a parent. Um, 
as far as kids waking up, toddlers waking up and then needing extra help, because that definitely happens too. Um, in my sleep book, there's a technique called twinkle interruptive, which is a way of teaching kids to be more patient and helping them learn to be better sleepers. I don't really love doing cry it out with older kids, kids over a year or a year and a half. I much rather find smart and sneaky ways of getting them to be better sleepers. And that's, that's really, you know, the concept of Twinkle Interruptus. So it's a, it's a longer discussion. It takes a week to kind of work through it with them, but um, it's a way of teaching them to be more patient. It's also kind of stuff that I discuss in the happiest toddler on the block. Um, and again, I'm not trying to promote things. I'm just trying to help people understand where they can, where they can look for more information. Speaking of happiest toddler on the block, I got a question from somebody asking about troubleshooting with toddlerese. So if parents like myself aren't at that stage yet, toddlerese is, uh, my understanding is the way that you speak to your child, right, and you communicate essentially on their level to stave off any of these massive freakouts and meltdowns. Is that the sort of Reader's Digest version of it? It's it's sort of, but there's an important distinction, which is that this is not, it's kind of like happiest baby in the five S's. That will help you with a colicky baby, but it'll help you with any baby to be more peaceful, calm, and balanced. And toddlerese and all of the techniques and happiest toddler are not just there for to reduce temper tantrums. It'll reduce temper tantrums 50 to 75% if you use those techniques. But more importantly, and this is why I recommend it starting at eight or nine months of age. It helps you raise a child who's more patient, more cooperative, more balanced, more emotionally resilient. So it's not only for kids who are having difficulties. It's to help easy kids be easier. So for those who say that their child recognizes that they are doing toddleries on them, uh, one said, I think my mm-hmm. child feels as if I'm patronizing her. What do you, what do you say to those children? Uh, those parents who find themselves in that, that strange space where they're doing it, but the child realizes that they're doing it. Yeah. And that happens all the time. And that's where toddlerese is really something that's a skill that parents have to practice and learn um, and learn how to do it with their own particular child. Um, It really is just a way of acknowledging feelings with a little bit more emotion um, and a little bit um, simpler language. Um, there are three steps, short phrases, repetition, mirroring a third of their feelings. So it's kind of what you do automatically when your child is happy, right? When your child's happy, you don't say, very good, sweetheart. Uh, I see that you're having fun, right? You don't do that. You go, yay, you did it. Wow, wow, look at that. That's the way we respond when kids have positive feelings. But when they have negative feelings, too often we, we sound like armchair psychiatrists and we go, honey, honey, I know it's upsetting calm down. Daddy's going to help you. You know, we try to talk them out of it and that doesn't feel good. What feels better is to say, Oh, Oh, you, you, Oh no, you don't like that. Oh, you, your face is sad. And you're sad that that ice cream fell something in that way (coughs) for like a one-year-old or two-year-old. But when they start getting older, they start going, don't talk like that because they do feel patronized and they feel like you're using a gimmick. So what you need to do is just make it a little bit less extreme and use a little bit more words. Um, you don't, you're frustrated, honey. You want that GI Joe and you don't want your brother having it anymore. I see your face is so sad and now you're pushing me away. You don't even want me to say anything because you're so sad and you say, stop talking mom. Cause you don't like it. 
that's a way of acknowledging feelings without solving the problem right away. Too often, parents just want to solve the problem before they even acknowledge the feelings. And, and kids can solve the problems most of the time themselves. What they really need from us is someone who honestly observes what's going on and sympathetically reflects the feelings without, without um, trying to um, automatically make them give up their feelings of being frustrated or angry or jealous and that kind of thing. So it's a little bit more complex. It's more nuanced. And, you, and listen, you do it with your teenager too, right? Your teenager's upset. You might say, honey, I know you wanted that and you were looking forward to it and I wish I could do it for you. I wish I could, but I can't. And I know you waited all week long for that. See all the repetition and the emotion I'm putting into that. I'm not just saying, hey, honey, you should have thought about that before you did that thing and now you lose the privilege. You don't want to just be in their face with things. You want to acknowledge things respectfully and sympathetically and empathetically before you kind of lay down the, lay down the limits. And that won't have any sort of lingering consequences down the road. Yeah, that won't have, that won't have any sort of um, lingering effects or consequences down the road for parents who feel like if they talk to their children as if they're talking to an adult, it in some way developmentally or intellectually will aid their child down the road. I, I often hear parents say, well, I don't talk to my child like they're a child. And that's why perhaps the speech is so total, advanced. It's, total, it's totally fine to use perfect speech all the time. But here's the thing. When you get upset, anyone gets upset, we turn off our left side of the brain. We become less logical, less reasonable, less eloquent, less patient. And so you have to speak to the right half of their brain, which is more about emotional language. You do it automatically when your child's happy. When they're happy, these, these parents don't say, well, I speak to my child in a mature way. And I say, well, that's very jovial, young man. I see that you're having pleasure, right? You don't say that. You go, wow, look at that. You know, so it's the same technique you use when they're very happy. And if they're balanced and calm, use all the five-syllable words you want. But when they're unhappy and frustrated, you need to change your language. Hey, listen, if you were upset with me and I said, oh, that's very upsetting, Teresa. I understand why you feel that way. That doesn't feel good. But if I said, look, Teresa, I get it. I get it. I'm sorry. I'm really, really, honestly, I'm really sorry. I know I put you in a bad situation. I know you're frustrated. And I'm really, really sorry. And then I go blah, blah, blah with my excuse. It feels better. It's just the way we talk to people who have emotions. I think we should leave it right there. There are so many other questions that I can ask you. I, Dr. Karp, I could talk to you for hours. So hopefully <laughs> when we uh, see you back in New York, I can follow up with you and uh, you bring more questions to you. And by that point, my baby will be a lot older. <laughs> And so I'll be really tackling new struggles. Thanks. I look forward to that. And congratulations, Teresa. It's a very exciting time of life. Thank you so much. I appreciate it, Dr. Carp. I'll talk to you soon. Pre-Motherhood with Teresa Priolo is part of the Fox 5 Podcast Network. This episode was recorded, edited, mixed, made awesome by Matt Onimus. The executive producers are myself, Matt Onimus, and Imad Ashgar. Byron Harmon is VP of News, and our Vice President and General Manager of Fox 5 is Lou Leone. Thanks for listening. If you have any questions or comments or you just want to say hi, reach out to me on Twitter at Fox 5 Teresa or on Facebook, Teresa Priolo NY. And stay tuned for our next episode. <laughs>